Good evening. Um, my name is uh, Nick Robbins. I'm a professor in practice for sustainable finance at uh, the Grantham Research Institute of the London School of Economics. It's my pleasure to welcome you to this event, Financing the Green Transition, What Role for Multilateral Development Banks? Uh, this event is part of the LSE's Shaping the Post-COVID uh, world. And if you want to tweet uh, the, the discussion that we're having here, please use the hashtag uh, LSC COVID-19. Um, what we want to explore in the next 19 minutes is the role that MDBs, multilateral development banks, can play in scaling up the mobilization of capital needed uh, from the global north to the global south, really to deliver a sustainable, inclusive and resilient recovery from COVID-19. This is clearly a big year um, to deliver the, the recovery out of the COVID pandemic. We have renewed international efforts through the G7 and G20, as well as also two major uh, summits, uh, the Biodiversity COP in October and the Climate COP in November. And as we come out of the COVID crisis, we really need to uh, redouble our efforts in terms of mobilizing finance um, for climate finance for developing countries, going beyond the official $100 billion per year target. And also there's a particular need for an urgent and concerted effort uh, to focus on the debt and fiscal and financing constraints that many developing countries are facing as we come out of this COVID uh, crisis. MDBs can play many roles in terms of this mobilization effort. Clearly, they can deploy long-term patient capital for the public sector, but also for the private sector, drawing in and crowding in many of the, the banks and investors that want to allocate capital to a sustainable and inclusive transition. Also, MDBs can help uh, work with governments to build that policy framework that is so essential in each country to mobilise capital for sustainable development, the long-term strategies, the investment framework, the sectoral pathways and so on. And also MDBs have that uh, capacity and expertise, which is so important to help uh, countries scale up uh, their efforts. Now, to help us explore these challenges, we have four fantastic uh, panellists. We have, uh, we'll start with um, Nick Stern, who is the IG Patel Professor of Economics and Government and Chair of the Grantham Research Institute uh, for Climate Change and Environment, LSE, and also head of the LSE's uh, India Observatory. Nick has been Chief Economist, both of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development and also Chief Economist uh, for the World Bank. Uh, and he's also author of a fantastic report uh, commissioned by the UK Prime Minister ahead of the G7 uh, summit, uh, setting out actually how we can achieve a sustainable, resilient, inclusive recovery. Next, we'll have uh, Josue Tanaka, who is a visiting professor in practice at the Grantham Research Institute at the LSE and also a leading contributor to the G7 report. Um, Josue also has a distinguished career in the MDB world. He was founding leader at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development of the, of the Climate uh, Practice and was managing director there, responsible for climate action through until the end of last year. He's also an advisor to the C40 City Coalition on Climate Finance. We're then delighted to have uh, Carlotta Selimore, who is a permanent representative for the European Investment Bank in Washington, D.C. And Carlotta is the EIB Sherpa and representative for the EIB uh, for G20 uh, issues, both finance and development, and also for broader MDB institutional cooperation. 
And finally, we have Amelie Lamine, who is uh, currently the uh, Director of Climate Strategy at the CDC Group and Senior Advisor also to the UK Government on COP26. Before this, uh, Amelie was Chief of the Climate Change Division at the Inter-American Development Bank. Um, one thing that Amelie is doing at CDC has been leading work on adaptation and resilience, uh, a collaborative uh, to accelerate investments into this uh, area. So four fantastic spirit, uh, speakers, really great depth of expertise. In terms of the event, what we'll do is hear from each of these uh, speakers for a few minutes to sort of set out the landscape, the key challenges, the key opportunities, key roles of MDBs. We'll then go, then go into a few of the sort of priority questions that emerge, and then you'll have time for you to ask your questions so please put your questions in the chat as we go along um, we will be voting on these and i'll be asking these to the panelists as we go on so uh, without further ado nick if i could uh, turn to you um, to to really set the scene for us maybe drawing from this new report you've done uh, for the g7 thank you so much thank you very much nick for getting us together and it's a privilege to be part of this uh, very unusual panel of very senior people in the MDBs who've actually done all this and uh, therefore understand it more deeply than any other group, I think. So first, this is a very special moment in world history when investment for recovery and investment for a new form of growth must be center stage. In many ways, like the period at the end of the Second World War, when infrastructure investment for recovery was at center stage. And more so, uh, just like at the end of the uh, Second World War, internationalism is of the essence. We have to rebuild together and in a different way. It's also a period when there's uncertainty about uh, so many things in the world environment that the confidence uh, and the strength that the MDBs can bring is crucial. So number one, this is a special moment. So what role for multi-development banks? Well, first answer is big now. The second thing is to recognize, and you began to introduce that, Nick, why it is that they can have such a big effect beyond simply the amount of money that they put into a project. The first is around project preparation. Second, around the environment within which projects will live and take place. The investment climate is crucial and they can contribute strongly to that in terms of policy, in terms of support for institutions, in terms of the creation of country platforms so that there's a coherent framework within which different kind of investments can take place. Uh, third, they, uh, their presence itself reduces risk. People are confident, much more confident in surrounding government policies and government behavior in a country where the investment is gonna take place if their investors are walking arm in arm with the MDBs. Uh, Joe well, will remember in the early days of the EBRD, I, I was there, as Nick mentioned, in the 1990s, we had one or two companies that could have, at that point, bought the entire portfolio of the EBRD 
which nevertheless wanted the EBRD together with them uh, on the grounds that it reduces risk because the, the multilateral development bank has a long-term relationship with the uh, country. Um, the, they have a whole range force, they have a whole range of instruments which can manage risk, equity, guarantees, um, the mezzanines, the combinations of things. They also can help with rolling over in the sense that, um, not rolling over in the sense of submitting, but rolling over in the sense of moving the investment along. Once it's got through the more difficult phase, then they can help sell on and actually with a bit of luck make a profit themselves, which they plough back, uh, back in. But that brings in the private sector and other investors. So there's so many ways using the strengths of the shareholding, of the balance sheets, of the instruments, of their presence, that they make a difference. And finally, we have to look at what's necessary for the MDBs to step up and play that crucial role that we're describing. And that means that they have to be able not only to step up their lending now, but also their own lending, of course, must shift very strongly in the direction of sustainability. And further, that level of lending itself must be sustained and indeed rise over this decade. This decade is absolutely decisive. Infrastructure investment doubles in the next 15, sorry, infrastructure capital around the world will double in the next 15 or 20 years. It has to look completely different from the infrastructure that came before. Otherwise, we say goodbye to three degrees, let alone well below two degrees. This is a crucial decade, and it's a decade full of opportunity. But if we ask, if we look to, if we demand that the MDB step up and sustain that step up to respond to this challenge, then we also have to will them the means to do that. All too often, people shout at the MDBs and say, you must do this, you must do that. But then, if you're a shareholder and it means stepping up, with some capital resources, often the uh, response is a bit slow or a bit quiet. And that is crucial. If we ask some MDBs to step up, of course they can make better use of their balance sheets, but at the same time, they must sustain that step up and that will mean more resources. And it's very important that the shareholders recognize that and are supportive and indicate that support in advance as they ask for the step up and the sustained investment. So that's my initial bit, and uh, looking forward very much to the discussion. Thank you, Nick. Thanks very much, Nick, and thanks for laying out that uh, that uh, spectrum of activity. Um, Josue, can I turn to you, um, drawing on your sort of EBRD experience, also contributing to this this new report. Where, what, what do you think is particularly important now in the situation that Nick, Nick has described for MDBs to be doing? Great. Thank you very much. And first of all, thank you for the opportunity uh, to be together and to discuss uh, this topic. I think, uh, uh, Nick, if I may, um, I think a first opening comment here is really um, perhaps to focus on the notion of MDBs as a system, right? I mean, obviously, I could talk about EBRD to no end, uh, but uh, I think, you know, what's important here is given the nature of the challenge, and given its scale, uh, I think it is the topic 
in which you know MDBs you know must you know and have to work you know closer together. And in that sense, you know, it's very good that you know in the years that uh, I worked in MDBs that uh, this is an area, and you know, I have the colleagues you know from uh, EIB and you know also Amali that we worked together for many years that. There has been essentially for, I think, close to 14 years now, a structure of collaboration of the MDBs on uh, climate uh, action. And I think that that's an important point of view. Obviously, each MDB brings its capacities, its possibilities, and should I say its constraints, right? But uh, the point is, I think, first to start uh, with that. Then to answer your question and perhaps building both on your introduction, uh, and on uh, Nick's uh, points. Uh, let me perhaps go into a bit more granularity on those three dimensions of, of policy, finance, and capacity building. On policy, I think to illustrate the challenges ahead, you know, how do we connect, you know, what Nick just mentioned to the issues at hand? Well, a first challenge for MDBs is really to be able to integrate, you know, the, I would say, green recovery uh, agenda in the economic discussions that are happening and particularly in their country strategies as they move forward. Because, you know, MDBs are, you know, most of them are machines, you know, and as machines, you know, they need to have, you know, the right element up front, you know, that drives the activity. So that's one challenge that needs to, you know, uh, happen at the moment. The other one is what do you connect it to? Right. And therefore, what can MDBs do working with their countries of operation on, for example, the formulation of the long term strategies or the support to the NDCs in order to align, you know, to the objective in relation to the Paris Agreement? So that's the second part. And again, it takes dialogue with the countries. Right. And that's one big challenge because often you can have a lot of pressure you know, do this, convince country X of Y, but again, countries are sovereign in the end, right? And, you know, you need to have a very strong dialogue to, uh, you know, have, you know, this green agenda integrated. I would say uh, as a final one, uh, sector policy is also, I think, a key area because at least in my view, the sector level is really the anchor that connects, if you want, the macro view, both on the economy and on overall climate goals for a country with the implementation, you know, how do you achieve uh, that? And Nick already mentioned investment climate, which is absolutely crucial because particularly as we will probably talk about private sector mobilization, you know, if you have, quote unquote, sorry, my language, a lousy or unreassuring investment climate, then there ain't, you know, uh, private sector mobilization. That's on policy. On finance, Nick mentioned pipeline development. So that's a key element, right? The key element is how do you translate those sector objectives, for example, into a set of projects? How do they relate to climate targets? And as we may talk about it later, you know, the MDBs are all engaged currently on developing methodologies for aligning relative to Paris Agreement. So obviously now pipeline development needs to be done in relation to that. Uh, there was also mention about the 100 billion, right? So MDBs have played an increasing role, and perhaps some would say perhaps too large in proportional terms, 
but at least a positive role in the sense that MDB climate finance increased by roughly 65% uh, since 2015, you know, between 2015 and 2019, has a target of raising from 41 billion, which was the 2019 number, to 65 by 2025. Obviously, my personal comment on that is that this increase of the MDBs should be matched by others, right? It shouldn't be that the 100 billion is entirely basically an MDB game. I think it would be uh, wrong. Um, Nick mentioned risk, and in interest of time, I won't develop that further. We can talk about it. Range of instruments, I think key element there, perhaps also not to sound like uh, advertising for MDBs, uh, is to say that, for example, on the private sector, only 22% of the climate finance was actually in the private sector, right? And that has to do, because if you look factually at the MDB system, the MDB system predominantly still has basically public instruments, you know, to, to work. Perhaps one word on policy loans, which some MDBs have, which obviously are a very interesting combination of the finance uh, with uh, policy. Uh, one point also on adaptation and mitigation balance, which is another issue, and I'm sure that Amali will uh, raise that. But if you look again at the numbers and results, one third of the MDB climate finance to date in uh, adaptation. So clearly some rebalancing uh, there. Uh, and then finally, to close on capacity building, Nick mentioned essentially policy formulation, project preparation. I would also put a big emphasis on implementation support, because in the end, you don't achieve your carbon emission reductions or your adaptation if your projects are not implemented. So maybe I'll stop here in the interest of time. If there are questions on EBRD per se, I can certainly go into that in detail. But now I'm keen to listen to the colleagues. Thank you. Thanks so much, Joseph, and thanks, thanks for giving us some numbers in terms of the quantum of that uh, increase in climate finance. So, Emily, I mean, previously at the Inter-American Development Bank, now at CDC, your, your thoughts are in terms of the priorities now and MDBs, indeed, the wider DFI community? Yes, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here with uh, good friends and colleagues. Uh, so I think, I mean, everything Nick and Joshua said, uh, you know, I couldn't uh, emphasize it more um, in, you know, the urgency really uh, and, and the critical time in which we all are now. Uh, I mean, in times like this, where we've had such a major disruption to our societies and economies, I mean, we have to see this as an opportunity now to really build that better to really ensure that we do things differently and bring and integrate resiliency, uh, inclusivity, and very importantly, put economies onto the pathway to net zero emissions or zero emissions uh, you know, by mid-century at the very, very latest. So I think that MDBs, uh, having worked at the IDB and having you know, seen uh, the, uh, the role uh, firsthand, uh, particularly in working with governments as very trusted partners, uh, is key. I mean, it's essential to uh, support governments now, particularly ministries of finance and economy, who, you know, will be thinking now how to come out of this uh, global pandemic and, uh, you know, really uh, ensure that, you know, the measures that are taken now really bring both immediate term benefits, but also 
put uh, put their countries onto a path for you know sustainable development and uh, very you know strong growth as as Nick emphasized and so the MDBs, I think, uh, you know, again, as Nick uh, mentioned, they, and both Nicks actually mentioned, uh, it's not just finance that it, that is brought, um, but very importantly, it's that expertise uh, that can be channeled uh, through technical assistance. Uh, critically, I would say, you know, probably in three main areas uh, now coming out of the COVID pandemic. I mean, first of all, to uh, really put in place those, uh, you know, where counter-cyclical measures are being put in place, policy-based measures. Not all MDBs do that. I appreciate that, but some do. Certainly the IDB does a lot of that. Um, those measures can be really valuable instruments uh, to uh, really reform uh, and set the basis for those structural reforms that are going to be necessary to really uh, decarbonize sectors and also, I would say, very importantly, in integrate resiliency into the economy. And so that really has to be, you know, a key part of, of this, uh, of, of these immediate next steps where, where relevant uh, and recognizing the role of technical assistance alongside the finance that will be necessary to, to support ministries of finance in particular with those uh, fiscal reforms and structural reforms that are going to be uh, so needed. And then uh, how really to incentivize the private sector. You know, ourselves as CDC, we, we're a DFI. We only do private sector investment. And, you know, we, of course, uh, you know, want to be able to finance as much as we possibly can uh, in, uh, in terms of delivering on uh, a green and inclusive, resilient economies. Uh, but often um, the policy frameworks are not in place, but also critically the pipeline, the projects, the, the assets are just not there. And and so the MDBs working with others, such as the Global Infrastructure Facility that uh, can provide uh, technical assistance for project preparation, you know, will be absolutely essential to build out and accelerate those investments that will attract the private sector. And I think when we look at what's happening globally now, we see all these um, commitments to be net zero, all these asset managers and you know, investors, pension funds talking about being net zero. Well, they will need those assets to invest in and you know we really do need to accelerate that and and now has to be you know th there's so much opportunity and necessity to be able to do that and then lastly and I'll, I'll just uh, sort of say a little bit now maybe come back to this later is uh, building again on the inclusive nature of the recovery and I would say that needs to be very much recognizing the adaptation needs of the most vulnerable countries, which are the poorest countries, but also the poorest communities within uh, countries, uh, as well as small island developing states. And it's essential that we don't, um, you know, we don't forget about those and that the MDBs who have, again, a critical role in supporting governments in building out their capacity, building out their capabilities in this area, integrating climate risk into their sectoral plans, into their uh, budgets, into their investment planning moving forward. And then very importantly, putting in place measures to incentivize uh, private investment into adaptation resilience as well. And Another dimension of, of uh, the inclusive agenda is that around the just transition and, you know, recognizing that, you know, that there is so much opportunity and need, but failure to 
integrate um, climate and sustainability now would only lock in uh, infrastructure, but also workers and communities into very unsustainable practices. But even so, we have to recognize that there will be some uh, just stranded workers, stranded communities, uh, if uh, particularly the MDBs, but uh, others such as DFIs as well, supporting uh, governments to be able to uh, put in place those measures to ensure that that transition brings social and economic benefits and that the potential negative implications are effectively managed. Emily, thank you so much. And uh, Carlos, if I could turn to you, uh, another the EIB, another part of that MDB system that uh, Josue outlined earlier. Really good to get your thoughts uh, as the European Union's policy bank, um, climate bank, uh, both domestically and also internationally, and particularly why, why you are seeing the priorities as we come out of the COVID crisis in the months ahead. Thank you, Nick, and thank you, everyone, uh, for the opportunity to be here. I think uh, everyone has um, eloquently set the scene on, you know, where we stand, what the challenges are, uh, what is the role of the MDBs. And I think what Hamali was mentioning right now about, you know, keeping in mind the long term of what sustainability has to be, you know, present in everything that we do, I think is 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 actually where I'm going to to start, you know, my intervention because it's is right there at the end of. I mean, we're still in the in the middle of a crisis, uh, and 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 we know that is now is hitting more other countries, but it has hit Europe very very hardly as well. And what was very important at that point was to. Uh, continue keeping in mind that there are long-term objectives and commitments of our own institutions, and that is the responsibility of institutions like the EIB, but like the other MDBs, to, con to continue making sure that that the, for instance, the environmental and social policies, the the big, the, the robust standards that we have in terms of climate are not relaxed in our commitments in the sphere of sustainable finance and we should continue applying them. So now that we move from rescue to more of a recovery phase, uh, we should continue looking, I mean, seeking for synergies between those long-term climate uh, goals and the short-term economic goals that our institutions have to, to, to recover. So in my view, what we have to take into account when we are trying to have an effective green recovery program, uh, we should be targeting sectors and investments that deliver a high economic multiplier, obviously bringing the private sector, which is something that we really need to be focusing in, and that is where everything that uh, Josue has also mentioned in terms of innovative financial instruments, the risking for the private sector comes into place, but also bending the emissions curve down to net zero, and that it should be a huge priority in what we are doing in terms of recovery, reducing disparities and, and, and inequalities, as Amali was, was mentioning, and also then building the resilience and adaptive capacity at project and system levels. I mean, we should actually focus having a program which tries to tackle everything. Um, in, in Europe, um, as, as you will know, I mean, climate has been 
a priority. We have been pushing for this climate ag agenda for a long time. At the European Investment Bank, as the EU Climate Bank, not only we started many years ago setting targets in terms of climate, uh, it was, as, I think it was in 2010, but we have been increasing those commitments as all the other MDPs have been doing it. And we have been working together to ensure that indeed this becomes, uh, that our financing in climate brings along also others. And, and, and we're talking now, for instance, in our case, of a commitment uh, of, of, of very important commitments, which was, for instance, last year in, in November 2019, we took a decision to end financing of an abated fossil fuel energy, of aligning with, with Paris Agreement by the end of 2020, and dedicating at least 50% of our financing to climate action and environmental sustainability by 2025. This is the way forward. And this requires support from shareholders. And that is where Nick was mentioning at the beginning. I mean, we need to have those commitments. I know that for the European Investment Bank, maybe it's easier. The number of shareholders, I mean, is, is EU member states is more limited. Nevertheless, it was not easy to take a decision uh, to get out of the fossil fuel energy. Uh, I, there are many countries which are still dependent on gas, but we just need to be responsible in the developed countries have to be responsible for the global issue that we are having. Um, I'm not going to, I mean, extend too much. The only point that want, I wanted to maybe mention now, and that is in terms of how the MDBs can help also in terms of the markets. Is, 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 is also the contribution that us, EIB, but the mainly the European Union has been leading, for instance, on the, uh, on the EU taxonomy for sustainable finance, which I mean, I, I, I see it's not only as a regulation for the market, but more as a tool, a tool to a classification system for economic activities uh, that make a, a, makes a substantial contribution to specific environmental goals. And, and, and that is what the market needs right now, to have you know, a, common, a common language on sustainability, a consistent climate and environmental related financial risk disclosures for the investors, and also assessing and monitoring and integrating the risks. And I think that is where the MDBs are also doing a very good job. And I think Joshua was, was mentioning this group, which has been working for many years already among the NDVs, but try to align on methodologies and align on, on, on definitions. And this is very important for the market that we do it all together. And I'll stop there. Thank you very much, Carlotta. Um, we, and thanks to people in the Q&A, actually. We're now getting people starting to get uh, excited and not wanting to ask uh, questions. One, actually, if I may, just building on what you said about the EIB's new climate strategy, as you say, which you launched last year, including the decision not to finance fossil fuels anymore. We have today the IEA's Net Zero Energy Roadmap. Um, a very powerful document, I think, showing the opportunity, showing the need to mobilize investment, but also making clear that uh, there is really no place for further fossil fuel investments um, if we're going to meet the 1.5 degree target. I'd welcome sort of thoughts uh, from the panel on, on, on that report, um, how it aligns with your views, maybe particularly on the fossil fuel investment piece and, and how should uh, MDB sort of move, take that step to move away from fossil fuels such as EIB and, and others have done. Anybody like to start on that? Nick? Um, first, 
Um, it's a very powerful report, as you say, Nick, and I, I very much recommend it, although I haven't read in the few um, minutes that have been surplus today, all of it, but I've gone through the, uh, the summary. Um, the first thing I, I would say is the importance of investment. And uh, in order to um, make the fundamental change that we need to make, we have to increase investment very sharply. And that's ballpark two or three percentage points of GDP. We can't be precise on that, but it's in that range. That's roughly where the um, IEA comes out. It's roughly where the report, which um, Josue and I led for the uh, G7 summit at the request of uh, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson, that's roughly where that one uh, came out. If you look from a different perspective, if you look from the perspective of um, the pressures on infrastructure around the world and ask how we've fallen behind on refurbishment, replacement in richer countries, how the emerging markets and developing countries are going to need to expand their infrastructure to deliver the kind of growth that they're looking for. Again, you come up with numbers like that and sustained over a long period of time. So that level of investment and the step up in investment comes up whichever way you look at it. And the IA have looked at it from the point of view of investment need to make that uh, transformation. Uh, second, in thinking about that investment, it's very important to recognize that at least in the G7, for example, we used to be at a couple of percentage points of GDP higher for investment not so long ago, 15 years or so ago. We surely can get back there. Look at it from the point of view of a world suffering from secular stagnation with interest rates on the floor, planned saving too big in relation to planned investment. Well, the right answer to that is to increase investment. And it does that as well. So I think the first part of the story is that this is investment expansion with a purpose mm -hmm. and it's investment expansion with a scale. And that's what we have to respond to. The second is, and, and others can come in more strongly, the second is to recognize the nature of the investments and the policies we need to get there. The nature of the investments, well, top of the list is the electrification of energy, and the expansion of the electric power sector. Uh, Adair Turner led the Energy Transition Commission report, which reported um, on April the 27th, and April the uh, 27th, and it, it spoke about a quadrupling between now and mid-century of overall electricity supply. And of course, making that electricity supply 100% green, and uh, that was specified by 2040, which is the date most of us come up with if we're going to go net zero for the whole economy by 2050. So there's much more to be said, but I think the investment story is absolutely critical now, and it's one further underlining of that. And the biggest part of that is expanding and um, taking to net zero electric power. Much more, but that is the biggest part of the story. 
Great, thanks. Joswick, particularly uh, your experience in the EBRD, with obviously many of the countries there are large fossil fuel states and countries and, and, and so on, rely on fossil fuels for their, their growth and so on. I mean, what, how do you see that, that sort of shift away from, from sort of fossil fuel financing by MDBs like the EIB and, and others are making? How is, how is that going to be uh, implemented? Well, I think here um, I should refer first and foremost to the point made by Carlotta a few minutes ago uh, about shareholders, right? Because, you know, MDBs are essentially owned, you know, by their shareholders and the composition of the shareholding has an influence on policymaking. And clearly, I don't need to give names but clearly, you know, the position of certain shareholders at certain moments of history uh, also has, you know, a big influence, you know, on the policy setting. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, when Nick started his first line this evening by saying it's a special moment in history, it's a special moment in history, both because of the challenge ahead, you know, the so-called decisive decade that we're in, but it's also a moment in history because, you know, with the events that have happened in a number of countries, there could be the possibility, right, of, I would say, a shift, you know. And, you know, Nick also mentioned internationalism. Well, you know, this is the big opportunity, you know, to try to shift that. And I think the intent of the report that we, we worked on, uh, you know, that we're still working on, uh, is, is very much, you know, that, you know. So I would start with that. So that's the first element, shareholders. The other key element to be remembered here is the countries in which the MDBs operate. And I mentioned the word sovereignty, you know, uh, in my little introduction. That has to also be taken into account. Right. And that balance, you know, that dialogue, you know, if we talk internationalism, I assume we're obviously talking dialogue. You know, we're not talking diktats or we're not talking, you know, and that is where I would say in terms of the politics, you know, and the policies, therefore, of um, MDBs, you know, things will happen. And so Carlotta, in a way, I would say in terms of EIB, uh, obviously, the fact that you have a joint common position, right, of the EU and therefore of the whole block of shareholders provides a context in which you can take the decisions that have been taken, right? And finally, to answer your question, therefore, what do I mean is in the BRD, indeed, we have countries, I think, like Kosovo, you know, who are, what, 80, 90 percent you know, still, you know, uh, fossil fuel, you know, even coal lignite dependent. How do you manage the transition, you know, of that country, right? And therefore, this question of having a dialogue, right, in the transition to net zero, to try to find out, you know, what the pathways are, you know, country by country, that's part of that policy work that was described, you know, at the beginning I would say anonymously, but that's where you can immediately see how sensitive and in fact, how complex, you know, that discussion uh, really is. So final point here is therefore to answer your question. I think that in some countries, right, one is going to have to take into account what that pathway is, 
realistically, one is going to have to have that dialogue. And clearly, the end result is clear, but how to get there may vary from country to country. Great. Thanks, Josue. I'm going to sort of move to some of the questions that are popping up in, in the chat. Thanks, everyone. Keep them, keep them flowing. And maybe turn the discussion particularly about uh, the role of MDBs and DFIs to crowd in private capital. All of you mentioned that as a key, a key point. Um, and uh, a, a question we have from Omar Shakir, um, particularly around sort of blended finance transactions, first loss uh, capital. Um, what can that be done to crowd in uh, private sector green investment? This is a very um, sort of voguish discussion, very important discussion. So it'd be really interesting to get some sort of maybe some examples or particular areas where you think the MDBs and private capital can, can, can focus at the moment. I was struck, uh, Nick, but in your report, the sort of two to three trillion a year in capital investments. Uh, that is needed worldwide. Only 25% is in the G7. Most of that is going to be in the large emerging economies. So that critical role of the MDBs in in sort of sort of facilitating crowding in private capital is going to be so important. I don't know, Carlotta, do you want to start on on that about how we how we how we can improve this this area? Yes, uh, thank you, Nick. I think uh, I mean in climate. I think we we are struggling everywhere to bring. I mean, private capital. We have been talking about this. This discussion in infrastructure in general has been going on forever. And we always talk about the same type of things, like risking and everything else. I think in climate is even more difficult. And I'm saying it's even more difficult because, I mean, we have to take care of innovative companies, including those investing in new technologies. Uh, and, and we have to uh, make sure that they that, that they have the tools to actually uh, participate into this green transition. Uh, I think uh, we we have examples ourselves in our institutions, all of us, of uh, you know initiatives that we have managed to develop. In our case, for instance, is the in Europe the Strategic Fund for Strategic or oh, the European Fund for Strategic Investments, the famous Juncker Plan, where obviously we were using a guarantee from the European Union to the risk. Uh, uh, some of these projects, which I mean, otherwise we would not be able to 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 be able to finance, and then private sector would come in. And leverage was very was very huge. I mean, very big. What I think we have to do is again go into innovative financial instruments. It's not always so easy. I mean, we repeat it, but I mean, we have layered equity funds, which allow us, you know, to develop experience in sectors like forestry, like biodiversity, natural capital. And we have to really go more into that. One Another example that we have recently, for instance, and I, I know other MDPs have done things with uh, with Amundi as well in the past, but we have we, we are doing a partnership with, uh, with Amundi Asset Management. And, and this is just an example, but I think it's a good one, which is indeed... Um, um, a, you know, a program which, 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 what is trying to do is actually developing green debt market uh, in Europe, going beyond the, the existing green bonds. I mean, I think we have all works in the green bond market, and we have developed it very well. Still, compared to the big, you know, bond market, is still a long way to go. Uh, but, uh, but I think we have to continue helping emerging countries to develop that market, not only issuing the, the bonds ourselves. So I think this is these are just some examples of things that we can do to bring in the private sector. 
Uh, interesting, Carlos, because yes, I think Amundi has a similar program with the IFC for emerging market green bonds, about a five hundred million pound uh, dollar fund. Very, no, very interesting. Emily, I mean, your focus on this sort of private sector role. What are the things that are working in your eyes? Yeah, so I mean, maybe just going back to um, uh, uh, IDB, uh, where we had. Um, uh, well, the IDB still does have a program with the UK uh, Bays uh, uh, Department on uh, sustainable infrastructure. And uh, that really, I think, was quite an innovative approach. Um, so it's a UK IDB program that worked in just four countries that brought a considerable amount of concessional resource for investments uh, to help, you know, de-risk uh, and bring in mobilised private capital into sustainable infrastructure. But importantly, it also had some technical assistance, significant mm -hmm. amount of TA resource that was uh, really uh, was to be used to basically work with the governments or in the case of, for example, in Mexico uh, with uh, some of the national development banks to integrate uh, sustainable infrastructure standards into uh, their pipeline, project pipeline uh, identification process. And actually, uh, this was very important or is very important to um, help investors have much greater transparency and certainty around uh, what sustainable infrastructure is. And I think certainly as Carlotta uh, knows, we had many discussions and I'm sure it's still going on uh, without me now. But, um, we, you know, the MDBs have been collaborating for, for, you know, several years, particularly in response to the G20 around sustainable infrastructure standards and how to ensure that sustainable infrastructure as an asset class can uh, be created. You know, I think this is really important. Um, this is sort of work that maybe, you know, isn't so visible sometimes of the MDBs, uh, but really important to provide those signals to uh, private investors and, you know, in partnering with others such as the OECD and, um, you know, and feeding into uh, G20 discussions on infrastructure. So those types of activities, I think, are really important, as well as uh, looking at the financial instruments um, as well. And of course, working with governments on the sort of embedding those standards upstream into the policy and regulatory procurement, PPP frameworks, etc., to really incentivize uh, the private sector into those types of uh, sustainable infrastructure assets. That's really interesting, Emily. I think that's a whole whole process of norm setting for private markets is very interesting. Uh, Jose, do you want to? Yeah, Nick. Yeah, I I just wanted to uh, because I think also it's important in our discussion, you know, not to give the feeling that all the answers are there and that you know we're all, you know, in a way satisfied with where things are. And I, I think this question, as has been mentioned by Carlotta and Amelie, has been there for many years. I think if you look at, you know, the current metrics, you know, we have to acknowledge, you know, that in particular what people refer to as the mobilization ratio of the private sector remains frustratingly low, yeah. right? And I think that, you know, this is one of the, the points, you know, that we need to work on that I think, due, you know, post-pandemic, the situation is not going to be easier Right, because the appetite of private investors, you know, is going to be affected because potentially the risk, you know, in the countries of investment will rise, um, and uh, you know, therefore, you have a more difficult context. Having said this, two two mini comments. One is to emphasize the point that Amalie mentioned about what I would call systemic impact, meaning work that MDBs can do 
that perhaps actually are not translated into investments you know, by MDBs, but actually spur the development of markets you know, in the countries in which these systemic changes happen. That's one. The second one is really, and I think this is a bit uh, a response to, to Omar uh, Shakir's question, you know, at least it's a comment on it, which is to say that I think we have to acknowledge that in terms of instruments and blended finance instruments, yes, all of us can probably have five of these meetings like we have today and all describes, you know, incredibly, you know, complex instrument with arrows everywhere and very long acronyms. But one of the issues is that, unfortunately, most of these don't really scale up. You know, they take a lot of time to be set up, right? Uh, they are good, you know, for, you know, panels and discussions. But if you look at the scale of the challenge, as mentioned by Nick, it falls short, right? And therefore, for example, the Amundi one is a bit of an exception, you know, because that has scale in itself. Now, are there other Amundis out there that do this? That's also a question, right? Because eventually that's what you would hope, right? So that's it. Just a few comments on that. And not for you, Nick, yeah. uh, the moderator, to feel that we are too complacent. Well, no, a healthy dose of realism. And Nick, I wanted to bring you in, and then Carlotto, please. Um, I, I fully endorse what Jose was saying about the mobilization ratio. Um, it has been disappointing. Um, but I do think that now, as they focus still more strongly on that, the MDBs are moving in a better direction. But what I wanted to do was to point to two things relevant to scale, which are not picked up in blended finance or mobilization uh, perspectives. The, the first is the country platform. Now, we've spoken about the policy and environment, and that is important. That's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the country platform. The country platform is the set of planned investments or desired investments, because you can't plan them all because they're mostly the private sector, but the set of desired investments, the kind of story that the IEA was telling the kind of story that we've been telling about where investment priorities are. And this is actually part of this special moment in history because countries are looking now at the kind of investment they need in a much more purposive in terms of direction and a much more quantitative way. So this is a moment where country platforms for investments can be set out, of course, primarily by the country concerned but the MDB can be very uh, helpful. We're edging that way. I won't say we've got it yet, but we're edging that way in the UK with the government's 10 points plan. Now, it doesn't cover the full scale of the story, not by any means, but that's an example. We're working with Indonesia, many of us, who are struggling to put, but, you know, with struggling with intent and starting to move in putting together that kind of story. So I think this is a moment of investment planning, not in the old GOS plan sense, not in the sense of the Planning Commission of India working to allocate investment across the states, but a sense of direction in the particular areas we need to go. Of course, power, a very big part of it, but much more than that. 
So I think the MDBs working together can play a very strong role in the country platform, which can is all part of the confidence building for private sector investment. That won't come up in the mobilization ratio, but it's very important and it's particularly important now as we reset our ways, but recognize it won't be all public sector uh, investment. The second argument where we can scale up is, is really very different. And that is the MDB as the innovator, the MDB as the setter of examples. And the MDB should work according to three criteria, which were baked into our souls at the EBRD, but essentially are there in all the uh, MDBs, at least all of them that work well. And that is sound banking principles. You know, what you do has to have returns related to the risks. Otherwise, your MDB will not survive and won't deserve to survive. The uh, second is additionality, that it is going where the private market left by itself cannot yet go. And it can be additional because of the strength of the shareholding that it has, uh, because of the long-term perspective of the shareholders, because of its mandate and uh, so on. So it's got to be additional, go where the private sector cannot go alone, because if it can go alone, then probably it should. Um, and the last one is that it should have development impact. In the case of the EBRD, it was transition impact, according to the criteria of that particular institution. Now, the EIB would be, in large measure, taking forward the policies of the European Union. That would be its notion of development impact, and IFC would, or should, have a development impact notion, which is more around SDGs and so on. But they should more or less coincide one way. Or, or the other. But it's the frontier story that I want to emphasize, the additionality in terms of going where the private sector can't go. You don't want to go where it's daft to go. I mean, if the private sector won't get, go there because it's silly and it'll never survive, then, you know, read it and note. But there are many areas which we know we have to go in, which will become much less risky as we learn how to do them well. And as, of course, as we have the country platform and the policy. That's the frontier story. So one way of putting it is that the MDB should be on the frontier or just beyond. And in what it does, it should advance the frontier so that other people will come through behind it. And I think those two ways, the country platform in the sense of overall direction for investment and the power of the example, using the strengths to be on the frontier and to push the frontier, those are two areas where you can really make a difference to scale and it, without actually trying to run it through blended finance and mobilization. That is, my points are in addition to blended finance and mobilization, not in the place of these are highly complementary. Wonderful, Nick. I think that re was really helpful in getting beyond those, that, that sort of the, the narrow, the narrowness of some of these metrics. Uh, many, many thanks. Carlotti, I think you wanted to come in on this point as well. 
Yes, I wanted to, I mean, uh, I make a point uh, about what uh, Joshua has uh, mentioned about, uh, you know, bringing in the private sector and, 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 and bring a little bit also the part of self-awareness that we have to have in the NDBs. And I agree, Joshua, one thing is the uh, Amundi thing and another thing is what, how we can really scale up. And I think uh, we MDBs, we have a lot of work to do as well on that. I think we had advanced, and Nick has mentioned that, uh, that we had advanced and we are doing better in trying to be in private sector, but we have some difficulties into really agreeing on standards. And I think that is something that, uh, I mean, the MDBs have been working as, uh, you know it very well, we have been working on methodologies, definitions. I mean, for years, we all do the same. We all have the same objectives. You can maybe, you know, say, as Nick was saying, maybe the EU objective in development impact is slightly different from IFC, but is this so much, I mean, so different? No, it's not. And even like that, we have difficulties to have those standards and work as a system which will allow for, I mean, for the private sector to really having talked to one, knowing that the other is going to have the same requirements uh, that, that the other NDB you have talked to. And this will make things much easier, not only for you know, promoter, promoters, investors, but also for governments, if there was a way that the MDBs could really advance in this cooperation as a system in a different way. And I think this is a critic to ourselves. We have been trying and there is a lot of work still to be done and we need to be pushed and we are being pushed by the G20 and we are being pushed by others. And even if we do things better, there is a lot of room for improvement. Great, thank you. I think that was a really rich response to that sort of private sector uh, inter interaction uh, uh, piece. Um, we've had a, a couple of questions, I think, um, on this question of the moment, Nick, as you, you framed at the beginning, and particularly around, and then, Joshua, you came in on the sort of the role of the shareholders and so on, and, and a particular question uh, from Jonathan Waters, who's a former World Bank director, about do does, do you on the panel sort of see the shareholders going to sort of seize this moment, particularly in terms of um, further capitalization and further enabling? Any any thoughts on that? I mean, uh, how how you think the shareholders might 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 be minded at the moment, Nick? Yeah, uh, there's a forecast approach to the question, and there's a uh, enthusiastic changing the world approach <laughs> to the question. Um, I've spent my time in finance ministries. Well, I've spent the time in the finance ministry in my own country and as chief economist of World Bank and EBRD, talking a lot to finance ministers. And finance ministers and ministries are quite good at saying no. Yeah? And uh, they've heard excited arguments about uh, why we must do things before. And they've heard in our own treasury in the um, in the UK, there's the language of the bleeding stump. In other words, that people try to explain to you that uh, not doing what they suggest they're doing is like cutting off an arm. Um, so we've we've uh, we we're aware that finance ministries behave like that for a reason. Yeah, that a lot of the arguments they're presented with are not totally sound. Now, we have to show 
Uh, and I think <clears throat> that this is not something that's only outside finance ministries, but we do have to show the special circumstances of the moment, both in terms of risk and in terms of opportunity. And we have to make the argument in the language Josue and I used in, in the G7 report is that at the moment, ambition is less risky than caution. So we have to set out that argument uh, with the evidence, and that's what many of us have tried to do. So um, I think that there is a real chance that finance ministries around the world will want to do this, uh, that they do recognize it as uh, a special moment. But we have to make that argument. Um, they're not villains. Uh, there are people who will listen, but they've heard special pleading many times. So we have to make sure that that argument is strong and with quality. I also think that this is a moment for presidents and prime ministers to uh, take the big view of the, uh, of the future. And I think some of them are ready to do that. Now, we're not going to sit and name names, but actually uh, quite a lot of them are asking the question about this big moment. So I think it's finance ministries and it's presidents and prime ministers. So, yes, there's a chance, um, but we have to make the arguments clear and uh, strong. Great. Thanks, Nick. Um, Josie? Just three quick compliments there to say, number one, uh, from a capital perspective, MDBs to a certain extent are a good deal in the sense of you know their capital structure, in particular the so-called callable capital uh, element. The second one is probably shareholders will seek first to push optimization before putting new money. So that probably will lead to rather interesting debates because in a heightened risk environment, you know, how do you do optimization, right? And so what's the scope, you know, uh, for, for, for that? And the third one, uh, also in the spirit of being very open, you know, this evening, is actually one on capacity of the MDBs. You know, if you say, let's double their capital, can they really double their investment? And I would then say two questions. One is the question of the country dialogue, right? Because that would assume you know, that what uh, Nick mentioned, for example, in terms of these country platforms and these country investment plans are actually agreed, you know, that the pathway of decarbonization is agreed. And all these things we need, in my experience, to be a bit careful. You know, we cannot just assume that, you know, top down, you know, all of this happened. And the other one, a very interesting one, is also the balance. You know, let's assume you double the capital of the MDBs what happens to mobilization, right? Because if you have the combination of doubling the capital and then saying the MDBs need now to do 60% climate finance target, well, you know, it would be interesting to see in terms of the universe of investment, you know, you must not lose that mobilization point. So an interesting equation. Thanks, Josue. For yeah, can, I, can I just underline what Josue said about value Please. for money? Um, because it's critical, particularly in relations with finance ministries. 
Mm-hmm. Um, our colleague Amar Bhattacharya has done these sums. Other people have done the sums. But for ballpark one shot, $40 billion in paid-in capital, you could double the flow lending of um, the MDBs. You know, maybe take it from 70, 75 billion a year to ballpark 150 billion a year. Mm-hmm. And if you um, uh, make an adjustment in the uh, lending ratio constraints, say from one to one on overall capital to one to 1.5, then you triple. Now, a one-shot 40 billion uh, that allows you to double the flow of lending. Uh, there isn't any better for value, any better value for money for finance ministries around the world. Um, that you can spread it out over five years. You're paid in uh, yeah. capital story. You know, so e- even a country that was taking 25% of this, and actually no country would take. 25 be much lower. But even if it was taking 25% of the 40 billion, that would be 2 billion a year over five years. To double the lending capacity of these institutions, it is incredible value for money. It comes from the genius of Keynes and uh, callable and uh, paid in capital. But that value for money story is something that you say to ministries of finance, and they sort of nod, but we have to keep on saying it. So they go beyond nodding and actually <laughs> uh, actually do it. It yeah. needs, of course, internationalism, because right. you don't put your flag, you don't put your country flag on MDB lending. And so it, it is extremely mm-hmm. important that we get together. Mm-hmm. But this is a moment, actually, where I hope that internationalism can flourish, because uh, COVID has taught us many lessons, but surely it's teaching us, I hope, the importance of uh, internationalism and that we can change quickly if we recognise we have to. Carlos, I want to bring in you here um, uh, on the sort of looking at the, that, how that how, is that same potential seen in DC? And then Amalia, bring in you. Um, how do you see this uh, potential that Nick was laying out in terms of the sort of scaling up of uh, MDB resource? Well, I, I think uh, I mean I, I think uh, the one of the one of the main words has come up in the discussion, and Nick mentioned it, and is additionality. I think we have seen it as well because at the at the, at the smaller scale, we have at the EIB this discussion with the European Commission regularly when we are asking to receive more funds you know, for the blending instruments and everything. They said, yes, we know you want to do more, but we don't want, I mean, this is not supposed to be crowded out. So you're supposed to, I mean, I give you more. It's not to uh, put the money where others can put it. You really have to prove, I mean, where the additionality is and where this money is going to be. So this, I don't think is it. This is not supposed to be a competition for volume in terms of our institutions and see who gets more money to be the one who does more finance. I think it's a question of final investment. It's a question of where the money goes, the impact that it has, and how much leverage you manage to 
obtain. And that is where you have to really explain to your shareholders how you're going to use those funds and, and, and manage to get the leverage which is needed and the impact. And therefore, additionality is crucial uh, I, as an explanation argumentation to be able to get additional funds which are, which are needed. Great, thank you. Emily? Yeah, I, yeah, no, just to build on that point by, by Carlotta and also as uh, I think the, the last point that Joshua made, and I mean, I fully agree, obviously, with Nick, that, you know, value for money, you know, the MDBs are, you know, essential in being able to tackle the scale of, of the investment needs and that are, that are now uh, required. At the same time, I do think having only having climate finance targets potentially is uh, not going to incentivize mobilization. I mean, I agree with the point on additionality, but if there's limited pipeline, limited assets available, then uh, there's no incentive to mobilize private capital because those climate finance targets actually requires you to, you know, you, you only count the amount that you, you are financing and the mobilization will be counted separately. So I do think in, uh, we need to think, uh, I mean, this in the context of capital increase, but not only about a, a more of a wider set of incentives. I'm not saying get rid of climate finance targets, quite the opposite, but I think they need to be complemented with other uh, targets around mobilization. Uh, and I think also around probably the quality and the inclusivity of climate finance as well. So on quality, adaptation finance, much harder to do, particularly in the private sector. But we really need to ensure that the MDBs are doing that really, really hard stuff, because if they won't, then who who will, particularly in the low income countries. And then in terms of the um, uh, ensuring that the LDCs in particular are also going to benefit, um, including from, uh, you know, in, in their economic uh, decarbonisation agenda. Because I think, again, just having a climate finance target on its own is just going to incentivize or continue to incentivize going for big ticket items that will, by definition, mean the bigger countries and big uh, types of investments that will be uh, in the energy sector, which, of course, is essential. But how do you then ensure that you're incentivizing those other smaller, particularly in adaptation uh, context and particularly in smaller countries like small island developing states mm -hmm. and LDCs. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, bringing those incentives in. So I actually think we need more of a framework around climate finance that goes beyond thinking about purely just one finance target to something that's incentivizing mobilization, uh, quality and inclusivity of climate finance as well. Thanks very much. Can I come in on this? this yes, the point that Emily's making is, is fundamental. Um, this is about sustainable development. Mm -hmm. And all our investments should be about sustainable development. I mean, are you going to say what fraction will I going to have, you know, 30% unsustainable mm -hmm. and 70% sustainable? It doesn't make any sense. And from now on, all our investments have to have uh, the sustainability uh, element uh, at centre stage. That will help us with the resilience and adaptation story because so much of what we need to do is mitigation, resilience and development all rolled together. And um, forgive those of you who have heard me on this before, but I, I think it's very important. 
mangroves, development, adaptation, mitigation. They protect against storm surges. They absorb carbon. They nourish the fish. Uh, they actually provide home for the tigers and the, uh, and the tourism. Uh, restoring degraded land, clearly mitigation, adaptation, development, wound up together. Decentralized solar, all of mitigation, adaptation, development. Wise tropical building design, all of adaptation, mitigation, development. Public transport, adaptation, mitigation, development. System of route intensification for rice, you know, so you don't flood the paddy fields, so you don't release the methane, you save on the lifting of water, and it's more robust against difficult. I mean, you can go on, but so much of what we do is, or what we need to do, is those things wrapped up together. It's sustainable development. Now, not all of resilience is exactly like that, but I think we should have criteria not expressed in terms of 50-50, because that's actually almost explicitly ruling out the huge examples that I just gave. But what we can say is that at least 50% of the uh, investments supported should have a strong resilience element to them. That's a different way of saying it. The first way of 50-50 is actually wrong. It's misunderstanding development. But if you say 50% should have a resilience part of it, then that seems to me that uh, that makes sense and we can, we can discuss yeah. the numbers and so on. But the story of sustainable development being what we're all about now, at some point, you shouldn't have to call it climate finance. It's finance for sustainable development. Exactly. So uh, we've got a few questions and we've actually got only a quarter of an hour left for this uh, masterclass on MDBs. Um, so one question, and Nick, I, it, was, it was something which was highlighted in the report you did for the G7 for the Prime Minister Boris Johnson, was about actually the sort of composition of climate finance. And this is not always the role for MDBs, but particularly raising the quantity of grants. Frank Schroeder has mentioned this, the sort of the grants, maybe particularly for LDCs. Any, anybody want to comment on that, the balance between low and grants, uh, particularly at this time? Uh, an initial uh, reply on that, which is that obviously when we look at the range uh, of activity linked to climate and sustainable development, particularly if you take, for example, what Amalie has been working a lot recently on, on adaptation and resilience, um, there is uh, a need to a certain extent, you know, uh, for grants. Uh, I think one has to be extremely prudent uh, in using that. I often use the expression, you know, we need to be very careful in the development of blended finance instrument that uh, we don't, uh, how do you say, exceed the sugar doses, you know, in each of those uh, projects, uh, because, you know, then, uh, you know, they can result in uh, habits that are then difficult, you know, to, to, to withdraw. You know, so, um, I, but I think given the scale, and again, you know, that's the whole part here that if you, you know, if we believe, you know, the points, you know, at the beginning that, you know, the challenge and the investment requirement is in the trillions. And if you look at the scale at which, for example, you know, the discussion of the hundred billion is at, and if within that you look at what the grant share of that amount is, I mean, it's completely disproportionate, right? So the only thing you can say is to assume you need more of it and you probably need as wise a use of it as possible 
so that you focus on those issues where basically, you know, market solutions, for example, you know, may not be coming. Thanks. Any more comments on this particular point of grants? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree that there is a need, I think, particularly on adaptation resilience, not just for supporting governments, which is important, but also a lot of the, uh, I mean, we've been looking at CDC to how, how we can invest more in adaptation resilience. And mm-hmm. um, and we are seeing some, you know, really interesting um, uh, opportunities, the very small scale and often very early stage, so more venture capital or requiring seed capital. And, you know, of course, venture capital in an African context, you know, is not necessarily doing venture capital in Silicon Valley context. So, you know, it's there that having more grant funding is going to be really needed to build out the pipeline of investable opportunities. You know, particularly these SMEs who are going to be so needed in the sort of local context to provide the technologies or the services for that particular area to farmers, to the water utilities, to, you know, to, to all sectors, basically. We really need to build out that ecosystem. So I think having grant funding there is going to be essential, certainly what we're seeing, um, as well as supporting governments and also the, the broader uh, project preparation support because I think uh, you know again we have to you know I've said it a few times now but we have to accelerate the pipeline development because there is a lot of capital I mean there's a lot of capital private capital looking for bankable projects but at the moment uh, you know they're, they're just not there. Great okay before we sort of go to sort of closing thoughts I'd particularly like to get all of you to think through how MDBs can really sort of uh, scale up their efforts in the next six months to seize that moment which Nick set out at the beginning. Um, we've got a question from uh, David McCauley, particularly on nature-based solutions. We talked about this a little bit, but I'd be really interested in, in sort of thoughts about that area. It's a very important area, both in terms of responding to the climate agenda, as you were saying, Nick, that these things are often interlinked, but also we have the sort of broader nature crisis. Maybe so any, any thoughts, particularly on the sort of the nature-based solutions agenda and the role of the MDBs? Um, let me say one or two things. I'm, I'm sure the others will come in as, as well. Um, the... Net zero story has really helped because the best uh, machine for removing carbon uh, is the growth of trees and plants and capturing carbon in the soil. And the reason why we think good soil uh, is dark soil is that carbon in the soil is good for, for growth and we can capture carbon in the soil. So um, the move to net zero and the desire for negatives from many, particularly private sector firms, is I think a moment where um, the chance of getting nature-based solutions is is become much stronger. But you have to organize it in a way that uh, projects are prepared and risks are managed. Um, But companies are now prepared to put money uh, in without a formal payback in terms of a revenue stream, because for them, the revenue stream is the uh, carbon that's saved and that they can show. So it's actually a special moment when wondering how you can uh, get people to put money in is actually got a partial answer. But I think making that work well, because there's a lot of con artists 
and greenwashers out there. Uh, making that work well requires partners who have a deep responsibility to be careful about these things. So I do think it's a moment where MDBs can be uh, of, of real value um, in doing that. Um, and also, of course, it reminds us that uh, a, uh, a forest saved or a forest planted or land uh, which is uh, restored is much more than the negative carbon. You know, it's about productivity of land. It's about biodiversity. It's about watersheds and so on. It's much more than simply uh, the negative um, uh, carbon emissions, but that gives us a chance at the moment where so many private sector firms have declared that they want to go negative and actually doing nature-based solutions is doing something that's clearly negative rather than actually saying, well, I've gone in with blogs in country X and blogs have said that uh, she, he will accelerate what they would otherwise have done. And so I've saved some carbon. Now, that argument isn't always wrong. Uh, it's often right, but actually it's much more convincing if they're clearly uh, captured carbon in the project itself. Great, thanks. Carlos, I know that the EIB has been sort of focusing a lot on the, this, this, this sort of area. Again, particularly uh, potential as Nick's laid out, but I think sort of huge risks either of sort of diversion of efforts um, to nature-based solutions away from sort of fundamental transformation of energy. But where do you see the sort of pathway forward for, for this area? Well, I think uh, I, I think uh, you know as as as, as we have talked uh, in the past for the I mean for the other topics. I think we see again that what we need to do is work together on partnerships with this. I think we have been working, for instance, with uh, um, the World Resource Institute. They are doing an amazing job. Uh, on this in project preparation linked to nature-based nature solutions and the EIB is working with them in this. I think we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We need to, I mean, work together on existing solutions uh, uh, to, to this. And I think developing those together are, are very important. I think the, the work which is being done also in terms of the MDBs on nature-based solutions is going in the, in the right direction. And I think we should be pushing forward all together into that. Okay, thanks. Um, Emily, anything to add from your perspective at, at CDC, particularly in the sort of looking towards sort of COP on this as well? Yeah, I mean, I just to say, I think, I mean, the MDBs, but also, I mean, DFIs really need to start mainstreaming nature-based solutions. And I think, I mean, I agree with all the points about the sort of uh, sec carbon sequestration, but I think uh, particularly when thinking about infrastructure, the, the benefits that nature-based solutions can bring for resiliency of infrastructure yeah. is uh, huge. And actually, at IDB, uh, so when I was there, we commissioned uh, with UNEP some work to look at how to make the business case for the role of nature in uh, ensuring resiliency of infrastructure. I mean, Nick mentioned watersheds, um, you know, whether it's coastal zone management, whether it's uh, looking at, um, uh, you know, protecting, I mean, pretty much all infrastructure. If you look at, and we hear examples in, certainly in Latin America, in Central America, in Costa Rica, you know, the areas where they've been most devastated, whether by hurricanes or El Nino, is where they haven't had the, 
uh, where they've uh, deforested and they've lost a lot of the natural resources. So I think that's really essential. And actually at CDC, we, we have a really interesting project in Pakistan, a wind, wind farm, which we actually did um, uh, support and work with the company to restore the mangroves uh, for the purpose of ensuring the resiliency of, of that wind farm because it was on a, on a floodplain. But actually the benefits go way beyond, particularly the livelihood benefits, you know, in terms of fish, additional fishing opportunities for local communities. So, you know, I do think, um, I mean, we've seen the, the focus on nature-based solutions you know, rising up the agenda. It was a big focus at uh, COP25, but I think certainly for COP26 uh, and heading into Glasgow, you know, we, we're hopefully seeing the maturing of this agenda that nature has to be part and parcel of everything we do. We can't, you know, it has to be mainstream and integrated into everything. Thanks, Emily. That's really good. So to sort of really, I'd like all four of you to really think about um, sort of how we make all this real lots of very wise remarks that you you all made i think lots of sort of pointers to where things work and so on actually a, a, a question we come in which will comment actually from emily dick ford a uh, from the caribbean uh, an academic in sustainable finance um, and saying despite all the a decade of actions the green climate fund and so on she's still seeing that sort of mdvs in her region are large still engaging largely in traditional financing and sustainable finances, perhaps we discussed today, still a novelty. So I suppose particularly, how do we make sure that this really does become the normal practice day in, day out? So Josue, I'd like to start with you uh, and then, uh, then uh, go around to your closing remarks. Really, how do we drive this agenda uh, forward? Thank you. Well, uh, thank you, Nick. So look, uh, just to show consistency uh, between the beginning and the end you know, of uh, my remarks, I would really put three points. The first one, particularly if you put a kind of six months period, is that, you know, hoping that we do manage the transition from, you know, the rescue phase pandemic to, in a way, the recovery phase. It is really this element in terms of the MDBs to be able to really reflect in a serious manner, you know, what we've been calling the green recovery into the dialogues with their countries of operation. So that's the first, I would say, um, element, because that will actually determine what happens after, right? Um, the second point is uh, the work, I think, the investment in the long-term strategy, because with all the discussions, you know, on the MDBs about Paris alignment and all this, well, you know, what does that mean, you know, in practice? Right. You know, what is your direction? You know, where are we trying to go? So... I think investment in that area is very important. And the last one, I think uh, maybe uh, to put some points that Carlotta mentioned, uh, essentially a good balance between the investment part and what I would call the systemic policy part. You know, for example, you know, mentioning standards, you know, trying to work on market standards, for example, the you know, sustainable infrastructure definitions. Uh, this is all very important because in fact, it may be that there is zero investment of an MDB, but you're really having an impact way beyond. Thank you. Thanks so much. Carlotta, to you for your, your minute. Uh, thank you, Nick. Um, no, I would say that um, cooperation, and I think uh, the word interna internationalization that, uh, that, uh, that Nick was using is good, but I think is you know, cooperation among NDPs, but also with governments and with other DFIs is 
fundamental. I mean, this thing of working as a system is something which is, it sounds very good, but it's not so easy to implement. And I think it's, it requires a lot of effort from everywhere, uh, from everyone is um, at the level of the institution from shareholding. Um, and, and that means as well, coordination among shareholders of our institutions. It means coordination among ourselves at technical level, and then also with governments, Nick mentioned country platforms, they have to be led by the governments. We need to know what they need. We need to invest taking into account the gaps and not just because projects are easy in that particular country. So cooperation partnerships, I think is crucial, are crucial at this moment. Right, and Nick, your thoughts, your final thoughts? Um, well, I don't want to repeat what was said before in the closing remarks, because I, I'm very much in, in agreement. I, I would just say one thing is that what we have to do now is to see all investments as sustainable investments. We have to see that we're now embarked on a much more attractive but rather different form mm -hmm. of growth and development than we saw up to a few years ago, that this is the growth story of the 21st century. So it's not a trade-off, you know, you're either traditional or you're sustainable. There's only one way, and that's the, that's sustainable, and it is actually a stronger, faster, more resilient, more inclusive form of growth. And if that's built in to, if you like, the model of change, the growth model, the development model that um, the MDBs had in mind, and that they're sharing and developing, not by themselves, but within the countries that they're working with, then that I think would be a tremendous advance. And the other ideas that were just sketched out would actually have a sort of an overarching home in which they fit. Fantastic, we're, we're on the hour, we might be cut off, but Amelie, I would like you to have the last word if we, if we can squeeze in, please. Thank you. No, I agree with everything that was said. Um, I think just add to that, it's the incentives, how to incentivize all of that. And, you know, concessional resource can be used to do exactly that, to promote that more systemic whole of financial system approach. I think the climate investment funds have, have probably been most successful in going in enabling that, but, you know, still a long way to go. Um, and also, I think how the incentives or how NDBs are incentivized to work with countries through a whole of economy approach as well. Because I think, you know, again, it's working across silos within the MDBs that also needs to be, be broken down. So incentives, whole of financial system, whole of economy approach. Well, thank you so much, Emily, Carlotta, Josue and Nick. A really fa fantastic session. I think actually it was, it was very honest, which I think is, is, is really, really helpful in these days and a huge sense of potential. Thank you so much and thank you for listening.